Let's pray together. Father God, our hearts owe you a debt of love. Help us now as we spend a few moments around your word to open our hearts and our minds to you. To love you by by listening to what you would say to us. And by discerning and, and knowing in our hearts how we must respond. Help us now by your spirit as we hear your word. Amen. Titus chapter 1 on page 1198. Um, We'll be sticking to that passage like glue today. Uh, I won't be asking you to look up anything else very much. So have it open uh, before you if you possibly could. Tuesday the 20th of January in 2009 will go down in history. It's a day when two million people gathered in Washington, D.C., and billions from around the world joined them uh, as a a television audience to watch uh, America appoint a new leader, Barack Obama. Tuesday's events remind us of the importance of leadership. I know there's a a particular extra element in this election uh, and this inauguration in the color of, of this man's skin, but in the end... It's leadership that's the crucial issue here. Barack Obama will be judged in the future not by the color of his skin, but by the quality of leadership that he and his government give to the American people and to the world. Leadership matters. It matters on a global level. It matters on a local level. We know that's here in Northern Ireland. Uh, as we try and long for, for leadership to, to bring us forward as a nation. But leadership matters too in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we're going to set aside a couple of Sunday mornings today and, and next Sunday to think uh, about leadership in this congregation. And in particular, we're going to be looking to see what God's Word says about church leadership. And we're going to do that to help us to prepare to elect a new leadership in just a few weeks' time here. In a couple of weeks from today, on Sunday the 8th of February, all voting members of our congregation will leave the morning service with a voter's form and uh, a list, a form allowing them to nominate up to 10 names of people they would like to see as new elders in this church. Now, maybe you're wondering about how you could prepare for that and that responsibility. Let me quickly give you three suggestions. First of all, pray. Pray that God would guide you and us collectively to the people of his choice. Secondly, listen to God's word. God's word teaches very clearly on the subject of church leaders. Uh, We're going to, to think about that for the next couple of Sundays. So pay attention to that and see uh, what resources there are there. And thirdly and crucially, take the opportunity to make your nominations. Uh, They talk about voter turnout whenever there are general elections or or local government elections. Uh, 
it's important that people in the church also play their part and vote. So if you're a qualified voting member, then please do take that opportunity over the next couple of weeks. Don't worry that you're too, too young or too old, that you've been here for too long or not long enough. If you're qualified to vote, then please exercise uh, that opportunity and take that responsibility. I don't know how familiar you are with the code. It's a great read. It's a, a book that underlies the, the, the law, if you like, of the church, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. It, it's fabulous stuff. You'll see when I read a little bit uh, in a moment. I've had some complaints that we don't read enough of the code in church services. So today I'm going to put that right. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs just now from the code. You'll appreciate the, the language when I, when I read it here. These, these paragraphs here give us, in, a, in more of a church law kind of way, some ideas about the qualifications that an elder ought to have. We're going to spend, you'll be glad to know we won't go through it in much detail, but let me read it for you because I, I'm obliged to do that. I'm reading, by the way, for those who are familiar with the code, I'm reading paragraphs 30 and 31. You'll you'll recognize them straight away. The duty of ruling elders as members of Kirk's session is to work together with the minister in the oversight and government of the congregation for the upbuilding of God's people in spiritual fruitfulness and holy concord and for the extension of Christ's kingdom among men. Ruling elders by their calling share equally with ministers in responsibility for practical witness both within the congregation and in the wider world. In the discharge of his duties, each elder should be assigned a district or special responsibilities within the congregation in which he may more particularly represent the Kirk session by visitation, private counsel, and report. To be chosen for the office of the eldership in a congregation a person must be a voting member of that congregation and a regular attendant on its ordinances. He should be circumspect and exemplary in his conduct, both in the church and in the world, of acknowledged piety, endeavoring to maintain the worship of God in his family and held in esteem by the people. Women shall be eligible for election on the same conditions as men. A ruling elder shall not hold office in more than one congregation at the same time, except as a member of an interim session. And then it goes on to give another technical subparagraph of that. As I said, it's a great read. It's all available online, so nobody need be without a copy. Um, just look it up on the Presbyterian website. That's less interesting stuff, I think about what qualifies a person to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ than what the Bible says. Uh, We have this habit sometimes of making life very technical and dry, but the the stuff that we read in God's Word here is is very down-to-earth, very easily understood, and very tangible. I'm going to preach for a couple of weeks on eldership this morning on the subject of qualifications. Uh, What should a person be like to qualify them to be an elder? And then next Sunday, I'm going to look with you at the elder's leadership style. What kind of things ought an elder to do and how ought they to do them? So let's look very quickly this morning at this passage in Titus 1. 
just a, a, a second of background. Titus and Paul, who's writing the letter, they know each other. They've worked together on the island of, of, of Cyprus, or, or sorry, of Crete. And Paul worked there as an understudy of Titus. Together they'd preached the gospel in that place. And they'd seen people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now Paul's had to leave the island. Titus is staying on the island. And Paul's giving him, in this letter, advice for how he can help the new churches on the island to flourish. So almost as soon as he begins his letter proper, Paul gives Titus advice for anyone who's establishing a church. He says in verse 5, Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus, there's nothing more crucial in the life of a church than the leadership in that congregation. As you said about pastoring these churches, these small congregations in Crete, the first and the most important thing to do is to get the right leaders in place. John Stott highlights the importance of this instruction. He says that the main way to regulate and consolidate the life of the church is to secure for it a gifted and conscientious pastoral oversight. That was important in Crete, and it's important here. That's what we want for Kirkpatrick Memorial, a godly and a conscientious leadership. In verses 6 to 8, Paul tells Titus what kinds of people these elders are to be, and he actually lists 15 different criteria. They fall naturally into three groups, and that's how I want to look at them this morning. The first group looks at an elder's home life. The second group looks at vices that an elder ought not to have. And the third group at virtues or qualities that an elder should have. We'll have to go quite quickly here because 15 of these things, if you do the sums, if I, if I spend two minutes on, you know, each of them, that's going to... So we're going to be moving quite quickly. But, but keep an eye on the overall impression that, that we get here, what Paul's talking about. The first quality that he gives is that an elder should be blameless. Actually, it's like an umbrella. The other 14 sit underneath this. So Paul's really saying they should be blameless and then going, they should be blameless in in these ways and in this regard. He begins by focusing on the elder's home life, the husband of but one wife. That is, has he been faithful to his, his one spouse? Has she uh, been faithful to her one spouse. Does this person you're thinking of nominating for eldership in the church have a pure reputation in the area of, of marriage and sexuality? Is this a person you'd trust implicitly in that regard? It says next there, a person whose children believe. Do his or her children believe? Is he or she the kind of person whose children would naturally be drawn to follow their example and to adopt their Christian faith? John Stott puts it like this. The elder can hardly be expected to win strangers for Christ if they fail to win those who are most exposed to their influence, their own children. I think this is one where we need to be a little bit careful. 
I think we need to be careful of making a, a hard and fast rule here in the way that God's Word in its full context actually doesn't. Think, for example, of Samuel, uh, the wonderful Old Testament prophet and leader of God's people, a, a brilliant faithful leader for many decades of his life. His sons didn't follow in his ways. We're told that the most natural thing in the world in Israel was that his children, his sons, would have taken on the role from their father. But at the time when, when Samuel became old, the, the others in Israel came to him and said, Samuel, your sons rightfully should be taking over now, but look at them. They're not men of God. They haven't followed you. Despite your faithfulness, they are not faithful. Now, at no point did that disqualify Samuel himself from being a faithful servant and leader of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen it time and time again in our own experience. Think back, and you'll be able to, if you've been around the church of Jesus Christ, if you've known many Christian families, you will know of families where wonderful, godly parents have had to deal with the heartache of knowing that their children have not followed in their footsteps. What Paul's saying here is crucial, and there's a clear biblical logic to it, but we must keep it in its full biblical criteria. The emphasis in the end is on the parent. They're the person who we're thinking of nominating to to eldership. Is his or her the kind of example that gives the children every want to follow in their footsteps? If it is, then I believe that they qualify. It may be possible that in some cases, one or two children do not follow even a wonderful biblical model. The next one, whose children are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Um, (laughs) Does anybody want the job? Um, I think this is a bit like the previous If you look at the life that the parent lives out, I think we have to accept that once in a while, under the providence of God, in ways that we don't understand, a child can be wild even with wonderful godly parents. And again, if we look at the whole biblical context, I'm not sure that that would rule a person out entirely. Think always of the the parent, the person who you have your eye on. Are they a, a godly parent? Do they do everything they can to give good leadership in their home? Look at verse 7. It sort of summarizes this section. Since the overseer or an elder is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Paul's talking about something very specific when he talks about an overseer being entrusted with God's work. He's thinking of the domestic steward. In the Greco-Roman world to which Paul's writing, there were quite often very large households. And they would have had a steward or a household manager. It wasn't the the man of the house or, or the lady of the house. It was somebody paid in. to to live out that role. And they were given the responsibility of running the day-to-day affairs of the household. 
They, they bought in the goods and services that the household needed. They were head of personnel and looked after all the other slaves and employees. So this person had a very responsible role in running the household from day to day. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying an elder in the church of Jesus Christ has that kind of a role. They're responsible for this day-to-day running of, of God's household. And the point that Paul's making here is if a person can't do a decent job at home in their own household, why would we give them responsibility in the household of God for others? There's a, a very clear logic to what Paul's saying here. If a person's not exemplary at home, then we, we don't appoint them to be examples to us in the church. Let's pause for a moment here because for a second time we come across the word translated here as blameless. Paul's not talking about perfection. I think if he was, then we may as well just get rid of the role of eldership because nobody would ever qualify. What Paul's talking about here is being without blame. Do you know the phrase that we use in Ulster? We talk about an individual and we say, I've never heard a bad word said about him. Never heard a bad word against her. It doesn't mean that the person's entirely perfect. It just means that people, as they, they watch on and look at their life, they see a good person, a person whom they, they don't want to, to blame, a person with whom they have no issue. That's what Paul's talking about here. Christian leaders are to be blameless in that way. In the English Premiership, footballers are often hauled before the courts of the the FA and charged with bringing the game into disrepute. It's usually when they swear at the referee or kick somebody at the wrong time or whatever they do. We don't want to appoint to the eldership in a church someone who is, is likely to bring the name of Jesus Christ or his church into disrepute. That's what Paul's talking about here. Someone who is blameless. Let's keep cracking on here to get through these 15. The next section deals with vices that an elder ought not to possess. We've thought about home life and reputation. Now we think of some qualities that an elder must not possess. They mustn't be overbearing or quick-tempered. Are you thinking of nominating somebody, but you know in your heart of hearts that they're quite bossy? Don't do it. An elder's not to be overbearing. Are you thinking of nominating someone who you know turns angry, throws the toys out of the pram when they don't get their own way? Don't do it. An elder in the church of Jesus Christ ought not to be quick-tempered. They mustn't be given to drunkenness or violence. Drunkenness was widespread in the culture of that time. Just like it is nowadays, violence often goes with it. An elder in the church of Jesus Christ ought not to be given to drunkenness or violence. I've talked about this before, I'm sure, a few times in Kirkpatrick. 
the Bible doesn't suggest that Christians are to be teetotal, but right through it, it talks about the need for God's people not to be drunken. It's condemned right throughout Scripture. This is not a quality becoming or befitting an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. An elder must not be pursuing dishonest gain. Would you be happy to do business with this person you're thinking of nominating? Would you trust them entirely when there's money on the table? When things are really at stake? If not, don't nominate them. The elder in the church of Jesus Christ is someone you can trust entirely because they don't pursue dishonest gain. Just in, very quickly then, the last section of, of these qualities that Paul is flagging up. In verse 8, he introduces a third category. These are qualities that elders ought to possess. They ought to be hospitable. Actually, that, in, the, in the New Testament church, that's not just a quality for elders. That's for everyone. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Paul urges believers to practice hospitality. Christians are to be people who open their homes and share their lives with each other. Folks, I've made this connection for you before, but I think it's a valid one. Hospitality, the willingness to open our homes, seems to me to be an indicator of a willingness to open our lives. A person who will be a good leader, who will open their life to you, whose life will be open uh, for you to share with them, that person will be a hospitable person, someone who opens their home and their lives. These are the kind of people who can help us uh, make good leaders. One who loves what is good. Goodness is a big theme here in Paul's letter to Titus. And it's also crucial for the spread of the gospel. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus put it like this. He said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give thanks to your Father in heaven. When Christians live good lives, when they overflow with good deeds, it makes an impact on those who watch. That's what we want among our church leaders. People who who live good lives, do good deeds. One who is self-controlled. That was a really important quality in the pagan writings of the time in the Roman and Greek cultures. But a Christian leader ought not to be any less. Uh, He ought to be a person who is uh, self-controlled. He or she is to be upright and holy. If you think about it, those two actually, they talk about the same sort of thing, but just in a different relation. To be upright Uh, We could regard that as to be in a a good, healthy relationship with with the people around us, a horizontal relationship. And to be holy is to be in a right relationship with God, to be upright before Him. Disciplined is a quality of an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. That that noun is actually one of the the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 2. People who are growing in Christ are to be disciplined people. Don't nominate a person if you regard them as at all unreliable or casual about important matters. 
Those aren't qualities that a person can bring to the the leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. That person won't be equipped for the demands of eldership. After this long list of criteria, we're told of one more duty that falls to any church leader. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can endure others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. To be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, a person must love and uphold God's word. They need to be able to teach it. They need to be able to challenge those who who refute God's word or who, who challenge it. Before I try to summarize what I think these verses have been teaching us, I need to point out that this list in Titus 1 is not exhaustive. There's another list very like it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's got most of the same qualities, but a couple of things are left out and a couple of extra things are added. The, the two extra things that are added there. First of all, an elder is not to be a lover of money. That's obvious, isn't it? How can a person with any authenticity call us to love God if it's clear that their heart is, is first and foremost set on money? An elder, it says, ought not to be a recent convert in First Timothy. And that makes sense too. If we're looking for people who can help us to grow and mature and move on with Christ, then we're looking for people who are mature in their faith. You know, sometimes people, naturally enough, ask, is there an age requirement for eldership? Should a person be a particular age before they're qualified to be an elder? But I, I don't think God's Word steers us down that path. Instead of looking for years on a birth certificate, it encourages us to think of Christian maturity. Is this person growing and mature in their life with Jesus Christ. If, if they are, that's more important than the age on their birth certificate. Let me bring this to a close. It'd be very easy to get lost in the detail here, but I want you to take a step back and look again at that list. Look with me at verses 6 to 9, these criteria for church leadership. Compare them with the kind of criteria that are sent out for jobs if you were applying for a job this week, notice one remarkable thing about Paul's list. There's no mention here of how many GCSEs a person should have, what kind of a degree or PhD they need. There's no mention of them being successful or wealthy. In fact, there's not a single item on the list that talks about a person's abilities or skills. When Paul talks about the kind of people who should be appointed to church leadership, he's not looking for people who can do spectacular things. He's looking for people who are something special. People who are something special because God, by His Spirit, is at work in their life and making something of them. Men and women who love God with a passion, who know how to treat people right as God calls them to. 
Folks, if we're willing to take God's word seriously, and I I know that we are, then I trust that we'll take this view that Paul presents us here in Titus chapter 1. We'll see that integrity matters more than anything else. Before we look at a person's talents, their gifts, and their abilities, we'll ask, are they trustworthy? Are they faithful? Do they love Jesus Christ? And do they love his people? When you're looking for elders, God's word says, forget about reputation, charisma, and ability. Go for character. Godly character. Let us pray.